Tommy, I want you to go to the mayor now and ask him if we have an understanding. Now for Dinner with Racers, presented by Continental Tire, with your hosts, Ryan Eversley and Sean Heckman. Placeholder Radio. I'm a driver, very angry, the sound of a driver on the radio during a race. What do you think I should call it? Welcome back to yet another edition of Dinner with Racers. Totally sitting next to me and not on a Skype call is Ryan Eversley. I'm a solid six and a half feet away because social distancing is important. So if you listen to our previous episode, then you already know about uh, racing at the time and uh, good old Mike Boyle. And once again, if you want to learn more about Mike Boyle, where should you go? Wikipedia. Oh, uh, Amazon Prime. And watch our Prime video, Dinner with Racers TV. And uh, there's a lovely, lovely episode on there called Brickyard Empire, and uh, that features the story of Mike Boyle. So we'll jump right into it. Uh, Our final guest on this Mike Boyle story is uh, the gentleman that is one of the co-founders of the Boyle Racing Headquarters Foundation. John Pappas has become basically the guy that you need to contact if you're really into Mike Boyle history or stories or deflections. And uh, when we searched all sorts of background on Mike Boyle, we kept coming up with John Pappas's name. We got a hold of him. We met up with John right in downtown Speedway, Indiana at Dawson's on Main. And uh, I believe I had a buffalo chicken salad. And it wasn't like, I didn't. I don't mean chicken salad. I mean, it was a buffalo chicken on top of a salad. And I, what did you have? Well, if you watch our uh, show, again, called Brickyard Empire on Prime Video, you'll see that I also had a chicken sandwich in rap form. You'll know it because apparently there's shots that I didn't pick up on, even though I may have been part of the editing, where I'm like fiddling with the food, but I was so busy watching you talk that I wasn't like, oh yeah, I look like an a**hole right there. <laughs> so of course we could not have gotten, is that a word, gotten? Uh, we could have not arrived at Dawson's on Main in Indianapolis, Indiana, had it not been for a, uh, a certain vehicle a certain vehicle. Is this, my, what, this is to is you. It, that's is a, this when I go? That's a pitch to you. Oh. You're looking right at, you're right next to me. My 2020 Acura MDX. Did I do it right? And uh, what kind of uh, tires? That would be Valvoline, the original motor oil. That was a great oil to get us there safely, but also, sure. again, again, oh. what, what kind of tires? <laughs> Continental tires. Cross contact. LX something. <laughs> John Pappas. Meow. <laughs> All right, we're going to start in five, four, three, two. Have you ever seen Westworld? No. Oh, okay. It's a good show. I've never. We're obsessed with it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a. We have a ritual. I uh, watch Monk. Ah, oh, that was that was over, a good time. Over, Sean has over a, and over in house. Sean has a story about Tony uh, Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Do you? Well, it's not a good one. Um, I mean, it's not a bad one. Yeah. <clears throat> I was so I live in Los Angeles, and uh, 
and I was with a couple of buddies. We were working on a different TV show, and we were walking down this one kind of thoroughfare with a lot of restaurants. And it's like myself and two guys, and Tony Shalhoub and two guys, and we start walking. And Tony Shalhoub sees me, and he's like, hey, how you doing? And just we start having this whole conversation. Like, hey, everything's good, yeah, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and that's it. And, like, it lasts for about 45 seconds, and then we go on, you know, we each go on our own way. And uh, they're like, you know Tony Shalhoub? And I'm like, no. <laughs> I have no idea what that was. So my theory is that that's what he does to see how people react. Uh, or he thought guess. you were somebody or he thought it was Yeah, it was either he thought I was somebody. Cause it, I, I mean, I, like, it could be. Yeah. It could be. He's, he's definitely a different character. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm either, I look the part of this average guy that yeah. everyone thinks they know, or it's like his prank. Oh. You know, either way, I thought it was funny. So we're sitting here in Indianapolis. And uh, we've spent some time with you. How you feeling? Excellent. You feeling good? Yeah. You ready to do this? Check up from the neck up, and they didn't find anything. So we're just talking about some of the other episodes you've seen of ours. Yes. Is there a Mike Boyle story you really hope we don't know about? No. Okay, so everything's yeah. out in the open. Actually, the, the story of Mike Boyle is, is, is one. There's a lot of stories about Mike Boyle. Um, but the real story of Mike Boyle is a lot more interesting and has a much greater impact on racing than all these other stories. Uh, he's a really significant guy in racing. Um, he owned his own racetrack, you know, uh, Roby Speedway, up in uh, northwest Indiana, just outside of the Chicago city limits in Indiana. And, uh, you know, he brought AAA big car racing in 1932 to Roby Speedway. And he had a couple guys working it, managing it, promoting it. Uh, but he owned it. And uh, it was a big deal. You know, he really put a lot behind racing. Uh, when Mike Boyle would come race in your town, wherever that would be, he wanted to put on a show like Barnum and Bailey. Yeah. And um, so you saw one of our race car haulers, the 1934 Diamond T. He started that in 1928. And... Uh, he had a 1928 Diamond T at that time, and uh, he usually had uh, at least four cars, big cars and a dirt car, uh, and there'd be a truck for each one of them, you know? Um, there'd always be one truck that was kind of the real fancy, elaborate chariot, yeah. and then the rest of it would be kind of standard, more standard trucks. Nobody had anything back then like... The 1934 Diamond T. That was a custom truck that he had built here in Indianapolis in 1934, you know. Forget racing. Forget Indianapolis. Mike Boyle, the businessman? <laughs> the businessman? Um, well, how would you define him? Well, Mike Boyle uh, ran away from home at the age of 11. And um, he started working as a laborer stringing power lines. Around what time? Um, we're talking, well, we're talking somewhere around the turn of the century, you know, um, 1901, maybe about 11 years old then. And so he went on his own and he ended up, uh, working his way to Chicago, working his way up through the, through the labor crew. Uh, and he got hooked up with a guy named Skinny Madden and Skinny Madden was the guy that ran all the labor out of Chicago. And at that time, you didn't have uh, different unions. You just had one basic 
generic trade labor union for union. the whole area. Yeah, yeah, it was called a trade union. Okay. So Skinny had the trade unions. And, and that's like uh, electricians, carpenters, yes, anything involving labor. Steam fitters, actually, steam fitters, I think, was the first one to split off. Okay. So at some point, they split this off. And uh, the IBW was created in Chicago, um, 134. I don't know that the whole thing started there, but they started the IBEW 134 in Chicago by way of uh, Skinny Madden. And Skinny put uh, Mike Boyle in as the business manager from the very start. So, And how old was he at the time? Oh, he was young. Yeah. Uh, he was probably 19, 20 years right. old. Right, young kid. He was not very old. Yeah. Not very old at all. There's no question Mike Boyle was a tough guy, and he was a man of his word, and he had the loyalty of the workers in Chicago. Yeah. You know, in the Even IBW. at that age, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He, he was a... He was a formidable figure uh, within that community. So, anyway, he had several names. Um, the newspapers in Chicago used to like to call him Umbrella Mike. Um, he used to uh, go to a place called Johnson Saloon, and the newspaper men would say that he'd hang an umbrella to take payoffs at the end of the bar, you know? So when a contractor would come in and sit down with him and negotiate with him, he was intended on putting their tribute, you know. I see. If the tribute was in the umbrella, you know, when So this when was sort of the, the, the touch-free exchange. Well, yeah. supposedly. Yeah. But, okay. but but we're not so sure that actually happened because Mike Boyle never liked the term Umbrella Mike. Now, the union... Was that because he got caught? No. He, no, uh, the, you see, that he, Mike, like, Boyle, Mike Boyle went to jail twice. Right. All right, and and the first time he went to jail was on a uh, Sherman Sherman Antitrust Act uh, conviction, um, along with four other business managers in 1917, and consequently, that's when he found the Boyle valve. His 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 cellmate actually had a, had the idea from the valve, and he he bought the patent. You know, I. <laughs> So he goes to jail. Yeah. And buys a patent. Yep. Doing deals. Yeah. Working. Yeah. Always yeah. working. Always working. Did he win it on a poker game? Yeah. yeah. He he really was he will he really was an extraordinary businessman. He was very shrewd. Um so long story short with Mike though, is um, you know, he was called the strike czar by the different businesses related to the electrical union in Chicago. And he was their nemesis. So they were always after him. And, um, you know, that created a lot of trouble for Mike Boyle. Yeah, if you're trying to contract and this guy's creating problems for you, I can yeah. see that. Now, there are things that about Mike Boyle. For example, in 1919, he brought the black skilled labor force into the union and uh, with the same rights and privileges as anybody else, which for the day, that was really, really significant. You know, Mike Boyle was that kind of guy, and his men loved him for it. And he... Had a loyal, a lot of loyalty because of that, yeah. you know. And well, so to me, and I, I mean, what do I know about, you know, trades a uh, hundred years ago? Yeah. But I, to me, the the skill of being an electrical worker compared to a carpenter or a pipe fitter or something like that seemed like it was one a higher skill and two more yes. dangerous. So I would assume you'd be more accepting of all comers who had the skills. Well, that's to some degree, but you have to remember there were a lot of. All right, so. 
1923, um, Mike Boyle was, uh, uh, he was wanted for jury tampering on the Len Small. Mm -hmm, uh, uh Totally common. All right, case for, anyway, so Len Small was the governor of Illinois. Okay. And and supposedly he he was, uh, they wanted for jury tampering. So Mike went on the lam. After he'd already been in jail for... Violating the antitrust yeah, yeah, act. Yeah, yeah, so, okay. mm-hmm. so anyway, and and he'd only been in for five months on the Sherman antitrust right. act thing. So, yeah. anyway, long story short, he goes on the lam for um, for jury tampering. Yeah, what was three the, months? What was the trial? Uh, Len Small. Okay. And Len Small was is. the governor of Illinois, and he was on trial for I'm not too sure what. They didn't find him guilty. So Len Small was on trial, independent of Mike Boyle. Yes, that's but correct. But Mike Boyle helped. Oh, they, they, Mike Boyle was allegedly. 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 Jury tampering. tampering. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, but remember, Mike Boyle is always under attack. He's always under attack. Yeah, right. So For jury tampering. For anything. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's the man so, coming down on him. That's right. It's the man. And this okay. is the guy so, that's already been in jail. Yeah. 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 So you're saying that he was always kind of being sought after yeah sure he was popular guy yeah absolutely well you know he was the nemesis and uh you know they called him the strike czar and um you know he didn't take any guff he wanted to get you know certain things for his men and if he didn't get them there would be hell to pay and what kind of hell would there to be to pay all right well three months he's on the lam for the lens small deal and um they catch him up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and he was actually at the uh, Wisconsin State Fair at a display for his new Boyle valve, you know, and he wanted to go up there and see that. Now, that's not very on the lamb. It's not very high. Yeah, well, he actually had bought a brand new car in Chicago the day before. Okay. And that's a good way to get caught. Yeah. yeah. Did, did, he pay, did he pay cash? But God only knows. <laughs> um, before... But his family was up in Minnesota. His okay. daughters and his, his wife at the time, they, they went up to Minnesota during that three-month period. Mm-hmm. So, But he was running around with his brother Tommy. His brother Tommy was a guy that was always with him, you know, Tommy. So he and Tommy were, were in a hotel, and uh, in the morning the police came in and uh, knocked on the door, and Mike answered the door, and he said... Uh, he goes, what took you guys so long? <laughs> so he voluntarily came back to Chicago. Well, okay. Okay. So voluntarily yeah, came voluntarily back to Chicago? To, yeah. yeah, he voluntarily. With several with men in suits. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. So, they didn't arrest me. I arrested myself. So so <laughs> what happens next is they give him a year in jail. Uh, and so For fleeing or because of the jury tampering? Well, I'm not too sure, sure which. That's fine. I really am not. Okay. But you don't have to know. Yeah, I just don't know. Um, but so so what happens next is he's in jail for a year. But President Woodrow Wilson comes in and commutes his sentence. And um, he's let out of jail. So that's the end of that. That didn't last but, you know, a very small period of time. So his answer to all of this was, he shut down all the electricity in the city of Chicago, put the bridges up, and um, he wasn't going to turn the power back on until they gave him the concessions he wanted for his workers. 
I feel like we kind of glossed over it. Yeah, a very major question. Yeah. How does Mike Boyle get a presidential pardon from Woodrow Wilson? That seems a little bit bigger than... Well, I guess that, you know, it was that obvious he was innocent. <laughs> right? Are you on the take? <laughs> <laughs> Are you leaving? You're like, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, was there a string of guys that were... Uh, Kind of exonerated all at the same time, or, no, or just just Mike so Boyle. Woodrow Wilson's like Mike Boyle. Yeah, just Mike like, Boyle. I'm I believe bored. in his innocence. I've got just, nothing going on. Just Mike Boyle. Just Mike Boyle. I'm checking on Mikey B. In Chicago. Oh, in his hand. Yeah. Like I said, Mike Boyle was an extraordinary businessman, and <laughs> yeah, you mentioned that. And I have to say You're that going to say that a lot today. Yeah, his his acumen for business, uh, you know, it wasn't seen any greater than in the racing world. The term strike czar mm-hmm. doesn't come from nowhere. No. So what is a – how do you earn that title? Um, by being unrelenting with regards to how you strike and when you strike. It wasn't just once he shut down the city of Chicago. It was twice. And it was very, very significant when he did it because he'd have them raise the bridges and shut all the power down. Which seems totally normal. Yeah, yeah which – Basically puts the city of Chicago to standstill. Yeah. Nothing like that's ever been done before or since. So, and it's not like you're sitting there on a group chat. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like everybody, so all the electrical workers yeah. at that time were like eight o'clock. Yeah. Shut and, it down. And after this big Glenn Smalls hit, you know, on him, he was pretty irritated. You know, and because sure. this was all about to him, it was all about, you know, they were trying to muscle him. You know, so he couldn't get the concessions for his men. So he just put an end to it. Woodrow Wilson gave him a pardon, and then he turned right around and shut down Chicago. So you just got pardoned by the president, mm-hmm. and then your first reaction is, I'm going to go ahead and bring Chicago to a standing halt. Three days later. Oh, good, good. So he gave it like a little bit of a window. Yeah, he thought about it. Yeah. Bring Chicago to a standing halt by raising all the bridges so nobody can get in and out. Yep. And shutting the power off. Yep. For all the reasons that that would hurt someone. You can understand why the workers of the IBEW loved him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One side. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So subtle is what how you could describe him. Not really. <laughs> um, they tried to assassinate him twice. Oh, Who's wait, that? wait, wait. Yeah. Is this the man? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well... There was a lot of infighting in the Union for power and control. Um, One time he was shot in the lower stomach and uh, in the Union Hall. By other Union, by IBEW guys. I guess so. Or whoever. The police came, and and, uh, that shot was not so serious, and Mike Boyle told the police to go away, and they handled it themselves. So nobody really knows who did what. And I'm just going by what was in the paper. The next time was a little more serious, though. They shot him in the jaw. Oh, I hadn't heard ah, that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, now, I will tell you this, and it was Carl Kaiser who um, was a riding mechanic in the race early on, and in, I think 1912 was his first year. And then he actually was the man that w- that that built the museum for Tony Hallman okay. in memory of Wilbur Shaw. Right. Um, Carl Kaiser... Uh, he he talked about uh, and some of his stuff uh, how Mike Boyle would keep two boxes under the front seat of his car, 
And Carl, by the way, started out with Mike Boyle in Chicago. Carl Carl was Carl Kaiser was his first distributor for okay. Boyle Valve. So he in Chicago. The scene, right? Yeah. So uh, Carl said he carried two guns under the front seat, you know, two six shooters, because if he couldn't find one, he'd be able to find the other. You can never be too careful. Right? Uh. But he did that after he got shot in the jaw. So it's not like it's an unwarranted idea. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Okay. How uh, many guns do you have under the front seat of your car? In Los Angeles? Yes. Can I not get myself in trouble? <laughs> <laughs> so he's known as the strike czar. He's three days out of being pardoned by the president from a jail sentence and decides to shut down Chicago with electricity and raise all the bridges so nobody can come and go. That's right. And this was in regards to getting better options and opportunities for his workers. Concessions for his workers. That's right. So on one hand, you have what people would look at as a criminal. And on the other hand, you have someone that as a uh, union lobbyist would be phenomenal. Well, Mike Boyle certainly didn't get good press in the papers. Didn't. Know? No, no. Yeah, the whole all. city goes down. <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> That's not good. He, he, really, he really was painted as uh, the worst of the worst, you know, and um, in the papers, you know. But um, there's also articles about him that are, that are different. But. You know, they sensationalized, I think, a lot about Mike Boyle because he was a nemesis to big business, to the big money uh, well, if in you're, Chicago. If you're a real estate developer, the last thing you want to do is he's overpriced electrical guys. Well, that's true. Yeah. So. Or what you think is overpriced. Yeah. I'm not arguing. You always got a, <laughs> I got a guy who can do it better and cheaper. Yeah. Right, uh-huh. right. Uh-huh. So his heart and soul was the, was the union. And he was willing to do anything to further the cause of that union. And he did. What would cause a strike? There's a number of things. It could be anything from um, wages to how many hours to the type of job. Any number of things. It could be that they'd have scabs come in doing work. There was two attempted assassinations on his life. Yes. And he recovered from both of them. Yes. Did, did he ever cease to be the personality that he was? No. So even after he's been shot twice, yes, he still was Mike Boyle. He never backed down. He uh, died at the age of 77 years old. Still the business manager of IBEW 174. When you think of 1930s sort of prohibition and post-depression mm-hmm. era Chicago... A lot of names come up, Capone and, and whatnot. Um, Mike Boyle isn't necessarily the first name that comes to mind. And I don't know if it's because it was more of a labor thing or if it's more because he wasn't necessarily well, as reasonable. Mike Boyle wasn't a gangster. In fact, um, he was bitter enemies with uh, uh, the Irish gang and, and with Capone's gang. He didn't like him at all. He wanted to keep him out of the unions. They tried to get in. They tried to infiltrate. And that was one of the things he was fighting, you know. And they were enemies. He didn't like any of them. Prohibition existed, but it did end in the 1930s when yes. the, the Volstead Act was repealed. When we think of the 1930s, 1920s era, gangsters were were bootleggers, you know, yeah, or sure. guys running the liquor rackets or, yes. or whatnot. You don't necessarily think of a labor union of that era as being sort of the, the market. So when right. that goes away, 
mm-hmm. when the Volstead Act is repealed and now all of a sudden there is no illegal market for the Capones of the world. Um, how tempting is the, for lack of a better expression, the, the union racket for a guy like that? For a gangster? Yeah. It's everything. Yeah. It's everything. I mean, it's controlling the, uh, the piggy bank, you know, and it's being able to control labor. I mean, and that's a big deal. And as I understand it, uh, he was Chicago-wide. Like, in other words, he wasn't, yeah. you no. know, the, so the, the liquor rackets would have been regimented to an Italian neighborhood or an Irish neighborhood or, Maybe. or wherever the district lines were drawn amongst those guys. Right. But in the case of him, it was just everywhere. That's like, right. Wherever there was electricity, that was a Mike Boyle sort of property. Anyway, you asked me what story I like the most. Yeah. If you've ever seen the patent of a Boyle valve, it's a flat plate on a rod. Okay. It has no bevel okay. on the edge. Okay. So it doesn't seal. Right. I don't think that'd work. No. And nobody has ever seen a Boyle valve. So the question is, was there ever a Boyle valve? And we believe there probably was a Boyle valve, but right. it probably didn't work too well. Was he actually making those products, or was he just stamping his name on other people's stuff? Don't know. Right. Don't know. Well, so let me ask you this. Um, it's not uncommon with some of the more modern racers that have had income sources from areas that are questionable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very common to see logos or companies that exist on the car that maybe aren't necessarily proper functioning companies as much as they are sort of a way to route money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is, could, could that be what Boyle Valve is? Well, because if they're not really making a product, you well, got a great I logo. I don't think so, because okay. you've got Carl Kaiser, who had Century Tire here in Indianapolis. Yeah. And uh, Carl had a very reputable career, um, you know, distributing products and also working on a lot of indie cars. They actually had a shop over there. Carl did. And, um, you know, Carl did not create his career on nothing so perhaps the perhaps a boil valve wasn't the best product in the world you know but it was the basis of the corporation that mike boyle started it became the product id and um it is what it is i mean i've looked at the patent doesn't appear to be a very good valve you know i can't believe you didn't go with boil oil Oh, that would have been good. Yeah. I mean, boil oil. And you can just pour your Valvoline well, into someone else's boil oil can. It, at Boyle Racing boil. headquarters, he did have uh, Lee Oldfield, mm-hmm. and uh, the name usually on the building was Lee Fo- was Oldfield Petroleum Products. Mm-hmm. So you never look in the <laughs> Indianapolis directory and find Boyle Racing headquarters. You find <laughs> Oldfield. Yeah. Boyle. Consulting. <laughs> 1920s, 1930s, Chicago. Yes. A lot of the notable figures of that time had expensive leisure activities. Yes. Like horse racing sure. or getting involved in theater and film or whatever it was. Not a whole lot of guys in car racing right. at the time. Well, Mike was also involved in sponsoring bowling leagues in the neighborhoods. And also in boxing. So he had a boxing gym on the south side of Chicago. And a lot of those guys actually were IBEW workers. Relative to some of the other activities, was racing something that he could kind of make his? Yes, it was. He got started because, um, well, first he had the Boyle valve products. And, um, and he had Carl Kaiser. 
and Carl Kaiser had originally come to Chicago to take a job with the Shearing Automobile Company because that's where his brother worked. And uh, within about a year, Carl had met Mike and came to work for him as a distributor. Okay. And so shortly thereafter, Mike became affiliated with a guy named Cliff Woodbury, Woodbury's Garage. Now, I assume that he and Cliff were doing some sort of a distribution thing of parts from Cliff's place or something. Cliff was already involved in racing. So the next thing you see is one of Cliff Woodbury's car with the words Boyle Valve Special on the hood. Now, that car was not owned by Mike Boyle. So I think this started, possibly, as a sponsorship for Cliff Woodbury's own racing interest. And then from there, as early as 1921, they were racing, you know, with Boyle Valve on their cars. Mike Boyle is sponsoring bowling leagues, boxing gyms, and race cars. Yes. And he's making a weekly salary of $50. Yeah, how's that well, possible? $50 was, was, in, was in 1916. $750 today. Yeah, you're right. So, um, and... And we're talking about him getting into racing in 1921. So some time had gone by. Sure. And, of course, you know, the automatic thought process is, well, you know, he, he has to have dirty money. His nickname you being know? Umbrella Mike would yeah, lead people. exactly. And they, <laughs> they were after him for that, you know, in the papers. I don't know where all the money came from. I can't account for where Mike Boyle's money came from. But I can tell you this. If he was a user of the union uh, and extorted money for his own personal gain, you would think the union guys wouldn't have loved him very much. Is that true, though? Yeah, because uh, how would they, they know? Well, well I mean, they see what he's doing. Well, he's sponsored by the Boyle him. Valve Company, though. Yeah, I mean, he's got like, the valve that you said was a great patent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're clearly a profitable business. Well, because there's a couple things. One, the... The internet's not a thing, right? So if you're not necessarily yeah. paying attention to car racing on the next state over, mm-hmm. you may not necessarily be aware of, of the, well, the expense involved and the Mike, effort involved. Mike Boyle was sponsoring races at Soldier Field, all over the Chicago land area. He really was, you know, all over the place. I mean, it would be very... In fact, in 1937, in Indianapolis, he had IBW on the cars. Right. You know, yeah. so it wasn't a secret. That's a good way to attract attention. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, but the other thing is, it was not a secret. But if you're an electrician, yeah, uh, or an electrical worker, I guess is a better term. Yeah. If you're an electrical worker, and you know that the healthy living you're making is because of this union and what this guy is doing, you may not bite the hand that feeds you. So yes, you see that there's some excess going into activities well, that don't benefit you, but you're making simple. a good living. You vote him out. But not if he's the guy that's the reason you're getting the payment that you are. Yeah, I wouldn't vote the guy out that closed all the bridges so I could get better, you know, health care and paychecks yeah. and all that. Right. So if he's, but if, he's if, you, if you thought that he was taking advantage of you, you thought the next guy was going to do better. And, and, and oddly enough. Or if I was terrified. Of yeah, him. if I was scared for my life. <laughs> oddly enough, the guys that, that ran against him in the union never once campaigned on Mike Boyle being on the take or being corrupt. I, okay, but you again. Can't. Yeah. <laughs> like of course you're not. 
You know how kneecaps work really yeah. well <laughs> when they don't get smashed? I like walking. Um, yeah. Like, why? You wouldn't do that. Yeah, okay. And there was also, <laughs> and I just want to bring up what you said about two assassination attempts. Yeah. Yeah, right. Well, that was from within the union. They, you know, there's other guys that wanted power. <laughs> I love this guy. Okay. Mike Boyle's our guy. So, on the other side of Mike Boyle's financial exploits we could put it uh he was also known to pay 50 percent prize money to his drivers whereas yeah. most teams would only pay 30 percent right and that was like how he got wilbur yes. shaw and the likes to come and drive well, for him you also have to remember that in that era the 1920s we were going into an era where um factory teams were not really a thing anymore and so you had independent teams and so Guys like Wilbur Shaw, I mean, Wilbur Shaw was a poor boy from Shelbyville who came to Indianapolis, was packing batteries, you know, dreamed of being a race car driver, built his own car, went out to Hoosier Speedway, just about killed himself. (laughs) You know, um, he didn't have the money to build a car, you know, or Cliff Woodbury up in Chicago or Fred Coomer. These guys didn't have money for cars. So forget about the prize money. You're talking about somebody who is so dedicated to racing, they don't know where they're going to eat from day to day for the for the car. Mm-hmm. So a guy like Mike Boyle comes in. He's got really pristine, beautiful equipment. You have an opportunity to drive that car. You're going to take it. You're not going to worry about the prize money. Although you're in it to win it. Yeah. You know? But that wasn't the thing, you know? And Mike Boyle did take care of his drivers. So let's set up some economic mm-hmm. ideas of the time. 1920s, post-World War I, post-Spanish yeah. flu. Major manufacturers started becoming less and less involved in yes. professional car racing. Yes. So in the early days of racing, uh, in the aughts and the teens, a car was entered, and the car won the race, not the driver. So if a car won, if a national won, the trophy was presented to national. You know, like a Charlie, a Charlie Mertz would be driving, but the, the trophy would pr- be presented to national. So very much at that time, racing was a venue to demonstrate automotive equipment and innovation. So, um, you know, going into the 20s, you started to have people that were in it for racing and not necessarily... Uh, to promote the innovation of their automobile or their factory, you know, like Duesenberg. So then you had cars, Miller, Harry Miller, he started building cars. So you had these independent teams popping up. And, uh, you know, and you had guys that were sportsmen, you know, on the dirt tracks. You started to have seasons where there were uh, sanctioned races both on dirt and on bricks or asphalt. And, And so it developed into a... A sport of independence from a sport of factory teams. Okay. What were some of the sources of funding during that era? Because in the Depression, marketing budgets were, you know, very judicious in terms of how they do it. Major manufacturers really can't spend any money. I believe the major funding sources behind racing during the late 20s and early 30s um, were from sportsmen people that were independently wealthy and were interested in the sport of racing um, or 
had an interest in the development of products related to automobiles and racing. You certainly didn't have sponsorship money like you have today. So people like uh, Mike Boyle, Joe Thorne, uh, those were big money people that came into racing. Uh, Mike Boyle from the perspective of developing markets for oil products. And uh, Joel Thorne from the perspective of he wanted to be a race car driver, you know? In the sort of mid-depression era, the, the funding was going to come. <clears throat> the, whole, the whole scheme was to design it around wealthy individuals who were there to spend money because they could. Yes. Not necessarily because of some ROI. Yes. In the 1930s. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> in the 1930s. In today's racing, especially the kind of stuff that we're mostly involved in, private money, somebody coming in that you've maybe never heard of, mm -hmm. funding a race team, starting going big, it's not entirely uncommon with what we do. Right. It almost sounds like that would have been almost the same thing then. Yeah, almost. Almost. But for different reasons. I mean, advertising then wasn't what advertising is today. You know? Um, the market conduits are so much different. You know? So... You have to figure any sponsorship that was done on IndyCar was really more limited in its exposure, you know. Even though it was of interest internationally, that didn't mean that somebody on the other side of the country was going to see a sticker on a car, you know, and recognize the advertising. In 1930. Right. Would be Yeah. Interesting. A lot of lessons to be learned here. So Mike Boyle comes in private guy mm -hmm. um does anyone ask who this guy is no he's already been sponsoring races since races and racers since 21 owned dirt cars and then you now he shows up in 26 has four brand new millers um brand new diamond t race car hauler and uh so first indy 500 he shows up four cars sure brand new polished proper program that's right. Was that unusual to have that many cars owned by one person? Nobody had that many cars. <laughs> and his first go. Well, that's Mike Boyle. You know, he, he just, uh, he was after it. I am of the opinion, take away what either of us think about Mike Boyle's business exploits, mm -hmm. that at that time period, all that you would hear is, yeah, this big business guy from Chicago is coming to race cars. And it wouldn't even really be thought of after that. Probably. Like the umbrella mic thing might not have made its way. Oh, it did. To this part of the country. Yeah, I think that was that was local lore in Chicago. Right. Umbrella mic. Well, and even in our racing today, I mean, we've had guys show up with massive sports car programs that for the first couple of years, there weren't, you know, you were just like, yeah, all right, fine. And it wasn't until they made the news. Well, I was going to say, realizing. but they don't yeah. have, like, local papers writing stories about him at that point. Right. Yeah, yeah, the only nickname that followed Mike Boyle down here in Indianapolis was uh, Lightning Bolt Mike. And they called him Lightning Bolt Mike because um, the IBEW workers called him Lightning Bolt. And uh, so uh, you'll see a photograph of a car in 37. It says IBEW, and it has a lightning bolt on it with yeah. Wild Bill Cummings in it. Yeah. And the lightning bolt stands for Mike Boyle. And so it's kind of forgotten stuff, but lightning bolt Mike. You know? Oh, I get it. Because strike. Oh, 
I was going with electricity. No, I, okay. <laughs> I think it's you a, didn't get I think it. it's a double I, entendre. I, I think it's a double so entendre. So in his case, it, lightning it struck several times. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> even though there's like boil valve and and whatnot, it sounds like there were a lot of uh, entries that he didn't necessarily put his name on. Well, he let Cotton Henning run the team. Okay. And so um, typically, you see Cotton's name on everything. Um, he even took his name out of it in 1947-48. Yeah. And he allowed uh, some guys called the Bennett Brothers, which were, as Mike Boyle put it, some flim-flam oil men out of Texas. And these guys, they came to Mike Boyle after the 46 race, and they wanted to buy the Maserati. Oh, yeah, sure. So they gave him a $3,000 deposit on whatever the deal was. Then they never came up with another dime. So Mike Boyle told him, look, I'm not giving you your money back. You can put your name on the car, but it's still my car. Yeah. So they ended up liking that, and they did the same thing the next year. So 47-48, it appears, is the Bennett Brothers special. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Boyle didn't care to have his name on it. In 1946, it's pretty interesting. Um, one of Mike's daughters, he had two daughters. The one daughter during... Uh, World War II had graduated from Northwestern University. Yep. And uh, Mike's wife had died uh, in the early 30s mm-hmm. due to breast cancer. And he really was protective of his daughters. And um, the one daughter graduated from Northwestern University. So Mike had Cotton paint the car purple for her. Huh. Uh, and so the Maserati was purple in 1946 with uh, yellow lettering that said Boyle Special with the clover. That's, the really, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah it I is. I like that. He had a big heart. Yeah. He had a really big heart. What about the other daughter? Like, uh, meh. <laughs> she didn't get the car. <laughs> she right. didn't get the car Joliet, painted purple for yeah. Joliet Community College didn't get a paint scheme? <laughs> Guess not. <laughs> Who is Cotton Henning? Uh, Cotton Henning is from Alma, Missouri. Uh, he started work uh, at the Stafford Automobile Company uh, when he was a young man, 12 years old. Um, he started rebodying Staffords and rebuilding them, and that's where he got his basic training. And uh, uh, Stafford is in Independence. Eventually, Cotton's family had moved to Independence. Um, it's very interesting. Uh, uh, he sold Harry Truman his first car, huh. which was a Stafford. Uh, Harry uh, ended up going, being good friends with President Harry Truman. And um, uh, after the war uh, in 1918, uh, Harry had uh, Harry Cotton uh, rebody his Stafford from a touring car into a coupe, Roadster. So you got one guy who's close with Truman. Yeah. One guy who's <laughs> close with Wilson. Well, yeah, a lot of friends in high places. That's right. We'll be crucified if we don't ask how the name Cotton came about. Yeah, his hair. That's too boring. The end. <laughs> <laughs> what was he known to be like, like in Around the Garage? What were the other mechanics and racers saying about him? Well, Cotton was a very well-liked guy. Uh, they used to call Boyle Racing Headquarters, in fact, Henning's Hash House, because Cotton would start in the month of March before the race, month of may 
putting out food, a buffet for reporters or whoever every day. And they could come for lunch and hang out. That was and, uh, Cotton or that was That was Mike Cotton. Well, made... Mike funded it. Right. Mike Boyle funded it. That was Cotton's it. idea to spin the media, not Mike's. Well, I don't know about that. They, the, the reporters would call the place Henning's Hash House. So okay. I don't All think right, the yeah. reporters were really cognizant of Mike Boyle being behind that. You know, they probably knew Mike Boyle was paying for it, but it was Cotton that invited him in, you know. And so it is what it is. Henning's Hash House. Uh, Cotton always had the little team dog with him, Speedy. Speedy was the Boyle dog. And uh, he came around in 1932 and is with, with him till 1947. And uh, you see Speedy in all the pictures of Boyle. You see him sitting in the Maserati in 1939 with his, with his head sticking out, you know. <laughs> and they used to have an article in the newspaper every month of May uh, about Speedy. And Speedy would tell you who he thought was going to win the race and this, that. He was a personality, you know, and that's... Uh, uh, very indicative of Cotton, you know, good personality, and he had his little dog, and he was the personality of the Boyle team, and everybody loved Speedy. So he was that kind of perfect figure that not only knew how to run a race car, yes. but build the show around it. Absolutely, yeah. he did. So American race cars during this era were basically built on momentum going left, getting, yes. going as fast as you can, being successful here at the Speedway. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. So what was the Vanderbilt Cup? Uh, they revived it in 1936-37, and uh, that's about it. You know, the the European cars seemed to do much better mm -hmm. than the American cars did at the Vanderbilt Cup race. And uh, it was a place where, you know, the American drivers and the European drivers could observe, you know, what the other guys were driving. So it was kind of a big deal. It's almost like if modern day they took f1 cars and indy cars and put them on a track somewhere together just that's like right a big showcase of talent yeah i mean and and then they would have been known as grand prix cars of course from europe uh, the maserati was a grand prix car um so yeah they put them on the same track and let them go you know um and and there's very unusual cars that ran there's one called the toppling special that uh, was built in south america that has that uh, babe stapp drove and i mean it has the wildest looking frame it has a a drilled frame, you know, that's in a V shape, and uh, you know, a lot of innovation, you know, would be seen at the Vanderbilt Cup race. Yeah. And when they brought it back, this was a road course that they ran at. Basically, that's correct. Uh, so totally different from American Speedway racing. And as I understand it, similar but different. So if you build an American car meant for the Indy 500 or some of the old tracks, these aren't cars that are good on the brakes or have right. short gears or anything like that. They're meant to go really fast around a left-hand corner. Yeah, but, but oddly enough, the American drivers figured out that there would be an advantage uh, to the Grand Prix-style cars at Vanderbilt uh, because they realized that with braking, they could go deeper into the turns faster which became a new strategy for American drivers. And I believe that was really realized by the American drivers at Vanderbilt. So the Vanderbilt Cup exposed that there were different ways that you could attack a corner. Yes. And it helped the American drivers learn a lot about how they could utilize this sort of driving techniques in their own racing. Yeah, the one thing that the Europeans incorporated into their cars that uh, the Americans realized were was pretty significant were these bigger brakes, 
they had the ability to dive deeper into the corners faster uh, and be able to slow down and get out of the corner quicker. So that was a great advantage. Instead of, you know, breaking early into the corner, they were able to, you know, make the most of the turn. Now, as I understand it, the Vanderbilt Cup for the Americans was largely privateer entries. That's right. Uh, so, so the Europeans were still basically factory-based. And so you had Maserati and Alpha and Auto Union and uh, the different manufacturers that were sponsoring the cars. Uh, and in the United States, you had independents, you know, with Millers and and modified millers and self-belts and this that and the other and and uh, you know so they went out there and the Americans learned uh, what the secrets were to the Europeans Grand Prix cars mainly was you know their braking and the ability to go into a corner fast and uh, stomp on those big brakes instead of having to slow down uh, way out in front of the turn they get through quicker that way so, you know, the big breaks of the Europeans were, were you know, pretty significant to the future of uh, IndyCar and uh, the American drivers. So, huge European state-run teams out there funded by Italy and funded by Germany that are out there mm -hmm. racing. Nothing but American independence and the Indy 500 winner just sort of flies out there just to see what's going on, right? Right. Like a guy named Wilbur Shaw. Yeah, 37 500 winner. Yeah, so... He gets there, um, and Wilbur uh, has his pay car that he's brought out there, which is a, a car that he built of his own design, uh, has an Offenhauser that he built with Coomer, and, um, you know, he's very proud of that car. But uh, there's, a, there's a wealthy sportsman that showed up at the race who had never raced a car. At, I mean, the, at the biggest road course race yeah, in the country. Biggest, biggest, and he shows up. This and he still happens now. Yeah, and he just, <laughs> he, it's just, he expects to be able to, to drive this thing in the race, even though he doesn't even know how to do anything with it. What was it? So Maserati. So he, so he shows up with a brand new Maserati. And, and says... Uh, so you have the best American drivers out there with these American Speedway cars that yeah. aren't necessarily meant for this track. Yeah. And some guy who's literally never raced before, yeah. but has the money to do so, uh -huh. buys like one of the nicest European road course cars you can. Brand new. Like Brand spanking new. Like the equivalent of showing up with a factory top tier effort. Yes. In his debut of anything on a racetrack. And never sitting in it. Good. Okay. Solid. I've never driven. P1 time. <laughs> so <laughs> Let's go to Lamar. So he tried to enter the race, and uh, there was some discussion over this. And uh, they decided <laughs> that uh, he had to have some experience in order to be able to get in the car and qualify it and so on and so forth. So Wilbur Shaw is there, and somehow Wilbur Shaw makes a deal to take over the car because this guy's not going to get to run it. And when that agreement was made, Wilbur ended up starting last in that car. In and, a Maserati. Yeah, in the Maserati. And it was an eight-cylinder Maserati. Not the same as the one that he later won the 500 in, but an earlier the Maserati. Episode. Yeah, and, and so, so he, he, he does very well in that car. And after the race, he sees Mike Boyle. And he's familiar and acquainted with Mike and... And he goes over and he comments to Mike. He says, man, he said, if I had a car like that, I could win the Indy 500 again. And so Mike Boyle says, okay, let's do it. And that's how 
Wilbur Shaw got hooked up with Mike Boyle. So I don't know anything about Wilbur Shaw, but it was this an offhand comment? In other words, like would he say this and be like, "Oh wait, what? You no, you're gonna just, buy it?" Or he was really hoping maybe he could plant that seed. No, the way I understand it, it was just an offhanded comment, you know. And Mike Boyle, being Mike Boyle, you know, saw a great opportunity. He saw a good driver, and he felt it was a good investment. And he watched how that car acted out there. He understood why Wilbur liked it, and uh, that was just the way it was. Interestingly enough. Uh, Cotton Henning, the Boyle team uh, mechanic, I mean, he admired the Maserati. But actually, Cotton was trying to ask Mike to get one of those Mercedes jobs. Oh. and um, But they weren't available. But uh, Cotton had always admired uh, the Mercedes. But, of course, Cotton became known for the Maserati. So it doesn't seem as far-fetched to me if I put it in the context of when Wilbur Shaw shows up at the Indy 500 in his first race, he finishes fourth. He's pretty good. He's pretty good. He then wins the 500 a couple of years later. Yeah, in 37. He's pretty good. He's pretty good. If right now a current IndyCar or Indy 500 winner shows up to a shop and says, hey, you know, if we can get this car over here, we could probably go win this thing, it wouldn't surprise me if a deal got put together. Right. I mean, Wilbur Shaw was formidable, and uh, but... Uh, Let's face it, there weren't, I mean, if a guy won the Indianapolis 500, he might have been past his prime also, you know. So there's some question, you know. And I do not know how well Mike Boyle knew Wilbur, but they knew each other well enough to be familiar and, uh, you know, comfortable with each other. And that's the way that went. So if some jackass doesn't try to race cars for his first time ever mm -hmm. at the biggest road course race in North America. Right. He might not get Mike Boyle's ride. That's correct. He might have never driven a Maserati. That's correct. And never known how capable those cars are. That's correct. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway might not exist right now. That is absolutely correct. History. That is absolutely correct. I'm good, Sean. Let's get out of here. <laughs> in sports car racing, Today, if we want to order something out of Europe, it's it's an email and a wire transfer away. Right. I don't know how the hell you buy a Maserati pre-internet, especially uh, when there was no precedent. I don't know. They got the sold. wrong car the first time. You know, they got the wrong car to start with. Like they put it in the like they, they well, put in the wrong Cotton, box. Cotton calls all over to Italy, and I don't know who he talked to, but they ended up sending over an eight or six CL, which is a petite, which is a smaller. Maserati. So they get this thing in uh, 1938. And for the 500. Yeah, for the 500. Yeah. It shows up and they go, what's this? And it's a couple of cylinders too small. Yeah, it's a couple of cylinders. So, they, so they, they look at it and they try to figure out what are we going to do because it's not going to be Indy. competitive. Yeah. And it's a V6, not what you were looking yeah. for. Yeah. So, so actually, straight six. Straight six. Straight six. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah. so <laughs> Maury Rose was the lightest weight you know, best driver. So they got Maury to run it, you know? And <laughs> so their solution was just put a really small guy we'll in. We'll get a little guy. And, and, and Maury Rose ran the car. He did pretty well. But, of course, the car was not what they were expecting. So it got sent back to Italy after the race. So question, um, how, how, how does that happen? Because if you, if you order something online today, mm -hmm. yeah, they put the wrong thing in the box. 
okay, fine, it was in a giant warehouse. Uh, these were custom-built cars yeah. by a couple of guys. Yeah. How did you get the wrong one? Well, I mean, you know, there's a couple of different theories. Okay. There's the theory that the Italians, uh, you know, charged one price and sent another product, you know, a lesser product. There's that possibility. In racing? Yeah. There, there's possibility that, you know, they, they simply didn't have the eight-cylinder ready okay. to go. Mm-hmm. You know, they maybe over-promised. Or maybe simply they, you know, couldn't communicate properly, yeah. and that's what they ended up getting, you know? Yeah. Not too sure. It's like when you go to a vending machine and you press what you think is the right button. Right. And then something else pops out. Right. We've all been there. It's the same thing. They ended up ordering then the correct car, mm-hmm. which was uh, the brand new uh, Maserati uh, HCTF, and this was number 3032. Yeah. As the beginning of 1939 comes, um, Cotton and Wilbur are getting ready to go pick up the car. And, yeah. and Wilbur's been waiting for this now for more than a year. Yeah. I mean, this is the anticipation is just boiling. He's driven the car. He knows what it's capable of. Yes. He's very good at the speedway. He knows what he's capable yeah, this of. Yeah, is, this is big time. Cotton goes over. He spends about two weeks over there with the Italians. They go through the car. Um, and he brings the car back. And uh, Wilbur's there. They put the car on the race car hauler. Well, um, they're going through Pennsylvania. I think they were Pennsylvania at the time. And Wilbur had uh, wired up a spare gas tank on the truck because I imagine it was pretty long distance in between places where they could get gas. Sure. And, uh, And the tank on the truck was only 10 gallons to begin with. So all of a sudden they heard something banging. And uh, they stopped, and they got out, and they realized that uh, the supplemental gas tank it fallen off. It was gra- dragging on the ground, right? And sparking, they, yeah, sparking. <laughs> and, and they realized they just averted a catastrophe, right? So they got the thing wired back up, and Cotton gets on top of the truck and pulls back the canvas cover to see water all over the bed of the boil hauler, and. He takes a look at the motor, and he finds out that coming over the Atlantic Ocean, the block cracked. And so uh, they went into a panic because uh, Cotton and Wilbur had been big dealing it, sending uh, messages back to Indianapolis where they were. They were coming back. They were going to make a lot of fanfare. Here we come. Yeah, here we come with the Maserati. And so they were expecting, when they got to Indianapolis, a lot of press. So the rest of the way back, all they were trying to figure out how to do is how to sneak back into Indianapolis and hide this thing because they had a real disaster on their hands. (laughs) So they get back. They manage to sneak it into the shop over on Jenna Avenue without uh, anybody, you know, figuring out what was wrong. Yeah. And then uh, two weeks later, the new motor was scheduled to come in. Now, what had happened was... Uh, there wasn't any glycol in the motor, so it just had water in it. The Italians left water in it, and it froze going across the Atlantic in the hold of the ship. Yeah, so uh, the front of the block was completely broken out, and there was a hairline fracture through every cylinder. So the motor was destroyed. Um, you know, maybe they could have fixed it. Today you could fix it. I don't know if back then I... Today brand you just new, throw in the trash and you get a new one. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, you're talking about brand new, high-tech, yeah. the very yeah. best... And it's destroyed. Yeah. Just go to so the Maserati truck. Yeah, well, right. no, the HPD trailer's going to roll yeah. out a new motor for yeah, you. Yeah, we'll yeah, take care of it. Yeah, yeah. no problem. So, anyway, <laughs> uh, uh, 
You know, the new motor comes two weeks later, and that's motor 3033. And, and just to be clear, that seems really fast considering it is because that motor was already in process yeah you know and cotton called and he told him hey guys no water in the block this time yeah you know yeah and so they sent the new motor it came two weeks later and uh, they got it and uh, there's a, a famous picture in Boyle racing headquarters and uh, wilbur shaw has got the chalkboard and it says uh, go cotton <laughs> and he's got the car completely torn apart yeah putting the other motor in <laughs> well the mishaps weren't weren't done yet though i mean they they still i mean this was no easy road to victory in 39 yeah so they get it all together the car's beautiful they call mike boyle down from chicago and cotton says uh, hey boss you want to come down and see your new car and so mike boyle comes down uh they're waiting for him out on the track they'd fired the car up you know wilbur was ready to go I mean, you could imagine yeah. Yeah. how exciting this would be. Expensive European yeah. car. And uh, so they get ready. They try to start it, and it won't start. <laughs> Good start. It won't start. Nothing. Nothing. Hang on, Mike. Nothing to see here. Yeah, it yeah, won't right. start. They just had it running five minutes and ago. And he just driven from Chicago to see this. Yeah. yeah, and he just driven from Chicago to see this. Which took so, like four weeks back then. So, right, yeah. so Mike Boyle died. wasn't there ten minutes, and he goes... Well, boys, he goes, I'm going back home. Call me when you get it running. Oh, God. And honest to God, Mike Boyle went back home. In my head, just because I've seen a lot of movies. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you, you make a guy like this mad, you're going to pay for it. So if the guy like this drives for hours yeah. to go see this pristine, extremely expensive race car that he's paid for. Yeah. And it doesn't fire up. Like, heads aren't rolling. No, no. He was huh. very close with Cotton. Because okay. um, this is fun, I guess. Yeah, and in Cotton's statement, Cotton was really upset. He was embarrassed. And, yeah. yeah. And literally, Mike said, hey, you know, boys, let me know when you get it running. I'm going to go back home. You know, so he ran back to Chicago, and he came back two days later. Cotton <laughs> called him and said, this Here is the go. way it's going. Yeah, and, and we've got it going now. I mean, Mike had already had to go through the block broke, this <laughs> happened, that that happened. I mean, what's one more thing? Yeah, what's yeah. one more thing? So Cotton had to take it back to the shop, figure out what is going on, because this whole condition is alien, mm -hmm. you know? So, you know, and, and Cotton was a real pro at doping the mix. Okay, uh, like which, the, the fuel? Yeah. Yeah. And so his combination was uh, alcohol, benzene, and acetone. A very potent combination, uh, because that stuff would, it was poison, and it would yeah. leach right through your skin create uh, cardio cardiovascular problems very serious but these guys but great uh, for making horsepower yeah right <laughs> so um but uh cotton realized the only way they could start the car after they would start it on alcohol was to put some gasoline in it mm -hmm. the gasoline would fire yeah the alcohol would uh, put a white glaze over the the tips of the spark plugs okay yeah. and so it wouldn't start then. So yeah. so Cotton developed a procedure, you know, with gasoline yeah. to pour it into the carburetor at the very beginning to get it fired up yep. yeah, and yep. get running. Which people still do yeah. to this day to start but carburetor. At that time, it was, was yeah. all brand new. Yeah. Was this know. just a case where Europeans ran traditional gasoline? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because it wasn't a condition they were told about. Yeah. It yeah. certainly wasn't a condition that Cotton witnessed when he was over in Italy. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, 
you know, Rudy Caracciolo came over. You know, I mean, they had good friends in Italy, and they had a lot of oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it was an unforeseen circumstance. Right. You know? So one of the things that always surprises me in this whole saga is that I'm hearing months and months going by, mm-hmm. ordering a car, going to Italy, shipping it back, all these things. If you did that today, you'd miss half of the season because of all the months it took to do this. And right. it seemed like only Indy mattered. Well, um, that's not exactly the case. You have to remember because you're running on different types of tracks and you have your dirt cars and you had your big cars. You had those to run, you know, your dirt cars. So things would overlap and uh, when it came to the Maserati, of course, that was an unusual circumstance because that car was built, bought for just one race. And it, in its lifetime, it only ran one race. Right. That was it. But, say, Indianapolis today, yes. you may have race teams that focus a lot of their prep on the Indy 500. Right. But these cars, they're going to run them in a yes. half dozen other races. They are, they do. yes. Whereas today, to run a proper top-level team... No one's really running an Indy-only program or even just having a car that is specifically only prepped for, right. uh, for Indy and then never runs anywhere else. Right. That doesn't happen now. But, right. But, uh, you know, back then, and it didn't happen back then. It did happen that one time. Because Mike Boyle wanted Because to. of Mike Boyle and what Wilbur Shaw wanted, and it was about winning one race with that car. And, you know, evidently it was a good decision. Ended up being the most successful car of the history of the 500. So... Didn't do too bad with that one. So even though this Maserati was supposed to be, you know, the car to win at Indy, it's still a European road racing car. Well, and also remember, there isn't another Maserati they brought to Indianapolis that did what this one did. Right. They're they're just, I mean, I don't care what it is, Alpha or Maserati or. Right. There's no other car. Um, so you have to figure. Not only was it the car. And it's, it's, it's advanced technology with braking in the chassis, but it also was the driver and the mechanic. Uh, Cotton Henning, um, he marked every nut and bolt on the motor, indexed them, and always put them exactly back as the factory had put them in. Same bolt, same hole, indexed at the same torque. He was very, very particular about how he handled that motor on that car. So, obviously, it made a difference. The car was unmodified 11 years after, you know, it was brand new and still running up front in the 500 1949 with Lee Wallard, you know, running in first place. How is that possible? European road racing cars of the 30s, they're meant to stop short distances, go through the gears, you know, varying degrees of corner. Indianapolis is not this way. Right, it's not. What were some of the challenges that, that car might have initially had taking taking to the track here? Oh, I mean, it's a fast car, but going down the straightaway, uh, it might have not been able to outrun, you know, a competitor on a... Because it wasn't so top speed oriented. That's right, it yeah. wasn't. And, and But you hit the turn, you know, and you can dive into the turn in that Maserati and hit the brakes late because you've actually got good brakes, right. you know? Yeah. And so uh, you ride those brakes through the turn, and it's a very momentary thing. It's not like in the Millers where you got to hang on those brakes coming into the turn to slow it down. I mean, the chassis, you know, roll on those cars compared to the Maserati. I mean, you have independent suspension on the Maserati. At the time, that was very, very technologically advanced. 
you know, so that thing could roll through those turns in combination with the brakes and guts of the driver, you know, and the astute nature of the mechanic, you really got something, you know, so it was the best of all worlds. How was Maserati doing at the time as a company? You know, I'm not too sure. They were doing okay. Um, you know, they were, they were technologically a pretty fantastic company, but they weren't Mercedes, you know. They weren't the number one in Europe. Um, they were significant. Um, but, you know, they probably ranked third, you know. Okay. You know, uh, I mean, there's no secret as to why Cotton would have wanted a Mercedes, you know, the Mercedes were really, really impressive, and yeah. they were really doing it in Europe. So, you know, but that was just, there was no way you could buy a Mercedes. Yeah, European economy, 1930s, very, very different, especially compared yes. to the U.S. at the time. So, yes, right. you know, the car companies that were doing well, state-run. You had Auto Union and Mercedes, which were yeah. funded by the German government. <laughs> um, uh, you had Alfa Romeo that was, you know, very heavily funded by yes. Mussolini's regime, but the Maserati <laughs> brothers uh, were kind of on their own. So the American money was probably pretty enticing. It probably was pretty enticing, and um, and you know, but they were building a pretty good product, you know, but they weren't number one, you know. Uh, I don't know what could have made them number one, but. They definitely were, were, you know, so for probably them, second or third to right. Auto Union and Mercedes. Yeah, yeah. So for them, this is a market. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's a big market. And, you know, the success of the 3032 Maserati, you know, certainly did bring a market to them because subsequently, you know, there were many other Maseratis that came to Indianapolis yeah. to run, although they didn't do too much. You know, they didn't, they didn't do what 3032 did. That wasn't the only Maserati that was racing in India at the time, right? No. So no. there were other Maseratis there, yes. but they didn't have anywhere near the success that this one did. Right. There were there were two other cars that were identical to 3032. That was 3030 and 3031. Um, those cars both came, ran in Indianapolis, did okay. Um, then there were two other cars that uh, were basically identical cars. One was built in 1941. One was built in 46. And those were 3034 and 3035. There is no 3033 because the spare motor of the 3032 is 3033. So there was uh, never a car 3033. Our audience is wondering that. Yeah, yeah. there we yeah. go. Yeah. There yeah. So, so 3033's <laughs> motor is actually in 3032. That's the, that's the winning engine. How many times are you called a nerd when you talk about Maseratis? Oh. Wilbur Shaw, who's already an Indy 500 winner, he hit a point in his career as he joined this program where the 500 was the only race he really ran, uh, which I find today would be almost unheard of. Well, uh, you know, Wilbur was seeing a lot of adulation and success, you know, after he won in 39 and then with the back-to-backs in 40. Um, he was looking more at his professional career. You know, and he was doing a lot of uh, advertising, things like that, uh, you know, on uh, newspaper ads and things. So he had become not a celebrity, but he'd become an international celebrity. Wow. Uh, they, they really admired him all around the world. When we talked to Wilbur Shaw Jr., mm -hmm. or Bill, yeah, he mentioned that the likes of celebrities that would come through his kitchen yeah. as a kid were unbelievable. Like Roy Rogers was in his house. Yeah. Not too right. far from here. Yeah. 
and you stayed at their house. That that to me is unbelievable because I'm pretty sure A-list celebrities aren't going over to Simon Pagano's house this year. No. Um, you know what I mean? That that's a good you. way to put Wilbur Shaw, uh, A-list celebrity. I mean, if you look at the beginning of the 1949 Indianapolis race and all the festivities going on at the beginning of the race, you've got the Purdue marching band spelling out Shaw on the straightaway. You know, his racing days are over, and they're still celebrating Wilbur Shaw. You know, that's pretty remarkable. And um, uh, Wilbur, Wilbur was, was a very significant personality. And I think it's... And you've got to remember, Wilbur came from nothing. Yeah. He was a vagabond. I mean, he was going from race to race with no money in his pocket to even eat. Yeah. And uh, so... Wilbur was not only did he survive, but he succeeded, yeah, he and said, that was quite amazing. Yeah, that's I mean, kind of the American dream, right? It is. Yeah. I mean, because he <laughs> he could have been killed in any race. Yeah, I mean, yeah. The one race he went flying over. He was in the Duesenberg, and he went flying over the wall upside down, and uh, uh, he climbed back over the wall. They thought he was dead, and he got a ride back into the pits. And uh, another car came in, and Fred Duesenberg told him to jump in. And so he jumped in to relieve another guy, and he took off. And here he is back on the track less than two laps later. Yeah. You know, and he's, he's running. And he just had a, a flying leap over the yeah. wall. horrifying crash that could have killed him. There's a famous photograph. The car is upside down, hanging over the guardrail, yeah. midair, yeah. flying. Yeah. You know, how did he survive it? He didn't have a scratch. And then he was driving two laps later. Oh, yeah, and he jumped on the tail of another car to ride in. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, who is this guy? Yeah, yeah, who is this guy? So, you know, you got to be willing to do it. I find it extremely interesting that Wilbur Shaw had this level of success, and it came from a man rumored to be on the take in Chicago funding yeah. it. Yeah. Because I've known the name Wilbur Shaw my whole life. Yeah. But until this project, I never heard of Mike Boyle. Well, it should tell you something about the character of Mike Boyle, that he has such good guys around him. The best of the best of the best drove for Mike Boyle. There's plenty of Mike Boyle stories from Chicago related to Mike Boyle's business. Right. Any stories that made their way to Indy? Uh, not really. I mean, the biggest story about Mike Boyle's business... Mm-hmm endeavors coming to India is Carl Kaiser. You know, Carl Kaiser, he had a significant impact on uh, racing through the years. I mean, Carl ends up, you know, on February 23rd, 1955, making a deal with Tony Holman to uh, start the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum and ends up being the curator of that museum and operating it until his death in 79. And he knew Wilbur Shaw, sorry, and he knew Mike Boyle from Chicago days. Absolutely. So what I'm hearing is without Mike Boyle and Carl Kaiser, there's not necessarily an IMS museum as there is today. Oh, that's correct. That's correct. There are books out there that tell greater than life's tales, but you don't know if they're necessarily true. Did Mike Boyle walk around these hollow garages with gentlemen in large coats next to him? With no. bulges? No. 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 Can no. You, can you he had his brother Tommy with him. Was Tommy a muscle? No, Tommy could box, but uh, Mike Boyle was Tommy's a lot a, bigger than his brother Tommy. Tommy wasn't a gun. 
Nah, Tommy wasn't a gun. <laughs> Tommy wasn't a gun. Mike okay. Boyle had nothing but friends in Indianapolis. So nothing he didn't, but friends. He didn't feel the need to walk around with any sort of presence oh, God, saying, no. I'm here, don't mess with me. God, no. No, no, no. He was always dapper uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the pits and in the garage area. And, uh, in fact, every photograph I've seen him, especially the ones in color, he's got cashmere on. And So if we were to know, look around these photos of him at Indy, we would never see guys next to him? Never, 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 never. He'd have his drivers next to him, you know, the guys he liked. I don't think you know how television works. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one guy had a it. shotgun at all times. Yes. I called him Shotgun Jim. Oh, all oh right. well, there we go. Yeah. It's <laughs> Lightning Bolt Mike. <laughs> Lightning Bolt Mike. Whether or not it's true that he was actually Umbrella Mike or that he'd been on the take or not, does it make for a bad story if he was? Well, no, but the fact is Mike Boyle was a guy that contributed a lot more to history than being possibly referred to as a gangster, which he wasn't. Um, He's a guy that, that really, really did something significant in his life, not only for racing, but also for the laborers in Chicago. And he was very dedicated to the advancement of the unions to make sure that uh, workers had rights and equal pay. And uh, he got paid very well for what he did. Oh, we know. There are guys in our sport today who have questionable business dealings, but within the sport, they're very heralded because Mm -hmm. they've done a lot, kept a lot of people employed, and we've taken a lot of heat for it. Um, (laughs) But... um, I firmly defend the idea that even if if their businesses are questionable, mm-hmm. their story within the sport is still awesome. Well, and I agree with that. I don't disagree with it, but I've learned so much about Mike Boyle that I can't h- help but overlook what he really accomplished, you know? And yeah, everybody knows about Umbrella Mike, but nobody knows about Lightning Bolt Mike. You know, and the lightning bolt was on the car in 1937. There was That was not just some design. You know, that was what they called him. And they believed in him in a very big way. And, uh, you know, his life and times in the IBW are testimony to that. You know? Not everybody liked Mike Boyle. He had a lot of power. And there were certain guys that wanted to take it away from him. But uh, if Mike Boyle would have lost his power, so would the workers of the IBEW 174 up in Chicago. So the reason we found you is that you're one of the key partners in a whole new Mike Boyle Heritage Project. That's right, the Boyle Racing Headquarters Foundation. And uh, the purpose and uh, interest of Boyle Racing Headquarters Foundation is to save the heritage of the Boyle Racing Headquarters, uh, to save the building, Uh, to enhance the neighborhood for the civic good and for the good of the uh, racing community and the racing heritage of Indianapolis. So it's literally the old race shop, Yeah. which right now is three walls, but you're going to build it up, make it look like the old one. Yeah, because, well, the roof fell in and it was on the demo list. It was going to be, it was going to be, when we got it, it was going to be knocked down in less than a month. They'd already let the uh, demolition contract on it, the city did. So we had to save it. Do you own the property now? Boyle Racing Headquarters Foundation does. Okay. And what's the ultimate goal? The ultimate goal, um, so we have a brewery that's going to be moving into the building along with 
uh, a historic race shop that will be there that'll house boil equipment, have different programming functions regarding the history of racing, and also we'll have a uh, uh, you know a big party room there, an event center. Yeah. So the majority of it will be event center. So it'll be very nice. Um, we also have quite a bit of ground there. So we have an area that's uh, about an acre area that's for outdoor events and festivals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been uh, working on, you know, improving the neighborhood, enhancing the neighborhood. Yeah. So uh, we're trying to do everything we can for the civic good of that neighborhood to help preserve the Boyle history, yeah. you know, into the future. The reason we found this story was because we were looking for something a little bit parallel to where we're headed now. We're mm-hmm. potentially headed into a particularly bad global economy. Mm-hmm. And the 1930s era of the Indy 500 was about as bad as it gets economically. Mm-hmm. Yet a cool story came out of it. Mm-hmm. And the race survived despite oh, yeah. 10 years. Yeah, one of the things that we think is really interesting about Mike Boyle is that he funded the entire program yes. out of his pocket, not because he was trying to sell something. And not because he was manufacturer affiliated, he just really loved racing, and it was worth his time and his money. Well, I think it. I think it's twofold. I do think yeah, that uh, Mike Boyle really did want to promote his Boyle valve. He wanted to build that company. He believed in it, even though I don't think the Boyle valve was actually a good design. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Mike Boyle thought he had a good product there. And it was obvious he wanted to expand out into other products because, you know, they modified the name from Boyle Valve to Boyle Products, Mm -hmm. you know, race team. And, uh, you know, at some point, the the business model even changed again. It became Boyle Racing Headquarters, Mm -hmm. and then it became a collaborative shop. So it goes, I mean, there's very solid business models that are occurring. You know, all along. If They're the valve is good, that if would be the a valve solid. Is good. Well, <laughs> and the valve didn't exactly, you know. I is mean, there a record of it selling? Uh, yeah. Did I mean, sell an actual valve? I don't know that I have a record of it selling. I've got a copy of the patent, <laughs> and I have a description no. of the valve, and I even have so, newspaper so articles. There's, so there's a lot of things I've on paper. But I've never seen a valve. What so I'm the, hearing is, uh, what is it? Is it called laundering money? Yeah. Is that how you <laughs> So we have a friend, we'll call him Randy Lanier. Yeah, um, let's make a name up. Who owned a racetrack. Yeah, an actual racetrack. Uh, because it had a lot of cash. It was called Road through. Atlanta. Yeah, and it had a lot of cash going Little through Little place in Brazelton. If you had a valve company, even if you apparently never sold a valve, you could have a lot of cash going through it. Well, I think it's one of those things, just because it didn't work didn't mean they didn't sell. Yet it and stayed on the car. What's that? Well, Yet it stayed on the car. We had to change well, the name of the company. <laughs> It did. It became Boyle Products. So, so I don't Boyle know. Did Boyle Products ever sell a product? Oh, well, I mean, oh, we're down. So <laughs> I might have another one. <laughs> <laughs> Boyle Products. Yes. Defend uh, that. Th- so you're saying Boyle Products actually sold products? Oh, yes, yes. Carl Kaiser here in Indianapolis. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Yeah, that was it's a well-known... Well-known distributor, Carl what, was. Right. I, mean, but I he, mean, you can have a company that has cash come in. And, well, I mean, <laughs> over at the museum, I mean, there's a there's a Boyle valve carburetor uh-huh. on the on the right. Miller 91. So Who made it? There, what, well, it says Boyle valve. How many of those exist? 
that one. Ah, okay, okay. cool. Got so, it. but they yeah. made enough off of that. Yeah, two point five million to, to per fund carburetor. millions of dollars yeah. of race cars, right? Yeah. That's I mean, the, it's that's a very a specialized part. That's the profit margin. Ah, hey. When Mike Boyle passed away, he had a very large amount of money in his bank account to the tune of like modern day four or five million dollars. Nah, no, he had seventeen thousand dollars. Okay, okay, that's not what I read. Well, it's the truth. <laughs> How do you know his bank account numbers? Um, because I have a copy of his probate. Any, <laughs> 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 uh, any, owned, and he owned an apartment building in Chicago, and some. Uh, oh wait, how do you uh, wait, own, owns a yeah, building? Yeah, so he owns lots of buildings in Chicago, but only no, an apartment building. What? Yeah, 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 more than a house. Yeah, and, yeah. He and the whole building, right? That yeah. he's that he's renting. Let me explain out, how real right? estate yeah. works. It was yeah. another business. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. So he owns a building, yeah. and he's only got seventeen grand laying around. Uh-huh. That's all. That's all. That's I don't all. own a building. I'm doing way better than that. He, he's seventeen grand. That's all I had left There's in the bag. No. I swear to God. Let me tell you. Where to go? Okay. Uh huh. That's um, worth nothing to me right now. Yeah. Uh, Wait, uh, honestly, God. <laughs> It was really kind of sad. So a month after he died, uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, his his new wife, you mm-hmm. know, his first wife died. Um, they actually broke in and robbed her and tried and stole all of her damn jewelry. One uh, month of, of like the biggest of one of the biggest union leaders out there. Yeah, yeah. that's not a good. Move. That no, well, that just sounds. I mean, they like, obviously targeted her. Okay, yeah, I was say, how many people do you know that have been robbed for their jewelry? Within a week, well, month, yeah. ever, month, month, but right. let month. alone the yeah. guy that's like the big head honcho union yep. leader for yep. Chicago. They sure did. Uh-huh. So, and that's just a normal thing. You I guess. could enter. So, Cotton Henning was the entrant for a lot of these races. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, Cotton would sign the paperwork uh-huh. and the cars come in. So it's almost as if, let's say, there was a if anybody wanted to collect right. on uh, some of Mike's business dealings, like government um if if cotton owned it all really it wasn't mike's i don't know i got everything in my mama's name i don't think i actually it's interesting race cars don't have titles uh-huh um <laughs> but they have entrance <laughs> and bill of oh, sales and bill of sales receipts. yeah <laughs> yeah so but yeah i mean cotton though would sign the entry forms because right. he would be the one at the tracks. Right. Not because, because he was asked to. If you had to repossess no, his the, assets. But the way they did it back then, they didn't do it by mail or email or, you know, they right. did it by Cash. you walk in by a and paper you sit record. down <laughs> yeah, and you write your name. Yeah. And that and name was not Mike Boyle. No. It have you, wasn't. Have it you was ever seen him. The Untouchables? Huh? Have you ever seen The Untouchables? Nah. No? Okay. There's <laughs> a big, big part of that about the IRS. That out there, <laughs> and how paper trails matter. Hey, what yeah. can I say? Mike Boyle was a very good businessman. Well, it, okay, you say not, that, but if he then invested in a valve design that was terrible, that sounds to me like a piss poor investment. Well, obviously, he turned it into a top race team, though. I mean, that's it, talent. I mean, uh, it, he turned it into a logo. I mean, I could also like put whoopee cushion on the side of my race car and win a bunch of races. Doesn't mean the whoopee cushion is a good investment now. No. Maybe it will be one day. Maybe it might come back. (laughs) (laughs) So did the Boyle Valve Company own anything, or was it just a sponsor? You know, um, now the Boyle Valve Company owned the race cars. Mm -hmm. That's my question. So so the Boyle Valve Company owned these race cars. Yeah, and Boyle Racing Headquarters. Who owned Boyle Boyle Valve Company? Well, Mike Boyle. Did he really? Yes. He was the head of the company. 
Okay. Yeah, no question about that. Okay, so if, say, he had his assets seized, they could also seize the assets of the Boyle Valve Company? Yep. Presumably, if it was in his name, yeah. Yeah. And that is, that's the truth. You know, um, Mike owned the cars, and uh, Cotton was his caretaker uh, of the cars and the mechanic. And um, Mike put ultimate trust in him. So... We knew a guy in sports car who, as his his business ended up becoming a, a problem for him with mm-hmm. um, the laws of the federal government, um, as things started to get continually hot for him, it was almost like he spent more. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, he started going bigger and bigger, and there's a theory that if things start to get hot, the more your money is in a lot of different pots. Mm-hmm. The easier, to track. the harder it is to track, and the easier it is to go liquid when you need to. Right, right. Well, always I'd go along with that theory, but Mike Boyle was pretty high profile. Wouldn't be hard to see where the money was. So is Scott Tucker. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, we are excited about the fact that this guy came from where he came from in well, terms of the questionable business. means. Questionable means. Yes. I don't think that's bad in well, terms of a cool story. Yeah, but in terms it, of the heritage, it, in terms of a cool story, it's not bad. But Mike Boyle was really just a runaway. Worked the power lines, came up the hard way. You know, was taken under the wing of the business manager of the trades, Skinny Madden. He gave him the lead in uh, you know developing the IBEW. He did one hell of a job. You know, it still today is a very strong union. I just have to wonder, though, if you're willing to shut down an entire city mm-hmm. of millions and millions of people to get your point across, that maybe you're willing to, like, put your hand out, or in this case, an umbrella. Nah. No? Nah. No? Nah. You wouldn't. You know what? When you're that bold, who needs to sneak it? People that <laughs> live in this country and have tax returns. Nah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, all right, all right. Boy, he shut it down though. Twice he did that, you know. Yeah, and and yeah. wouldn't be so bold to do other things a little bit. Yeah, a guy could shut down an entire city, but yet would have no problems creating a company that was just a means to have more cash transactions and mm-hmm. and help pay for racing or help allow racing. I don't know. Your smile's not helping your story. I feel, I feel like I feel like this is the minute he regretted this. Yeah, this he's interview. like, okay, I see what this is. I see what this is. Yeah. I find it entertaining. Big party. The, um, here. Yeah. I mean, you know, and, and I say this in sincerity. I mean, he really was a guy that took a lot of heat for who he was. Right. And they attacked him constantly. Yeah. Yeah. Bad yeah. stories, this, that, and the other. They wanted him to be viewed as the criminal. Okay. Right. You know. They wanted that. The guy that shut the entire city down. Twice. Twice. Yeah. 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 Because, you know what? They were screwing the union, you know? They were screwing his guys. And he said, and they tried to put him in jail. And they put him in jail. And Woodrow Wilson took him out. And he said, you know what? You're not going to do this to me. Right. You know? But none of this adds up to you so, is sort of questionable. <laughs> no, not really. He's a guy with a lot of guts. Oh, I'd say so. Yeah, no, no. Yeah. Not denying that. And people with guts tend to push the limits yeah. on things like the I law. Mean, uh, ultimately, you know what Mike Boyle got out of shutting down the city of Chicago was... Cash. 
Maserati. Yeah, for his workers. A Maserati. <laughs> you know? Yeah, he got a Maserati. <laughs> so, yeah, but he got, he, what he got was he got, he got the concessions for his workers. They caved. Right. You know, and they were threatening him. They were telling him, hey, you better turn it back on because somebody might die. Right. You know? I, th- I think people did that actually. actually did happen, yeah. yeah. Didn't a kid get run over by a trolley? Well, I think there was. The trolleys like, couldn't run. Like somebody Everything was shut down. There was something else like that. Like a well, brake didn't work. Or yeah, something yeah, yeah, like that. yeah. Yeah, well. Nah, a little here, there, but, you know. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, they threatened him, and, you know. But, you know, there's no two ways about it. Mike Boyle was a really tough customer. Not denying that. Yeah, tough customer. <laughs> Agreed. Yes. But he was tough for the right reasons. And um, like I said, his guys, if he would have been a user, a taker, if he would have been everything they said he was, right? there's no way he could have gotten away with it as long as he did. That he could have guys, stayed in charge of the union. Yeah, well, yeah. there's no way that could have happened. And, okay. Those guys loved him. Minus the two guys that shot. Tried to sh- that did well, shoot yeah, the guys yeah. that shot. Him, and then but. the person that robbed his wife a month after he died. Yeah, well, that was in Miami, though. Oh, I guess, okay. So, that was in Miami. They it not- was in Chicago. Oh. Have you ever seen Magic for Humans? <laughs> hey, Sean, you know how we're in Indy right now? <laughs> Look over here. But you're from Chicago, right? <laughs> or you're from, <laughs> Not in this world. You're from Los yeah. Angeles. I don't know yeah. how you got here. Okay. Okay. Yeah. But, I mean, honestly, that's that's really how I view him. You know, and I've I've really I've read all the stuff. I've yeah. looked at all the stuff, mm-hmm. and you know, That's it's the same guys at the trib that were always writing nasty things about him, and right. it was the same guys at the trib that were always writing the same good things about him. Sure. And so, uh, trib being the Chicago tri- Tribune, yeah. yes. Yeah. And and so, you know, I had to believe it was politics. I really do. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, you know, you have to look at what. What fruit, you know, hmm. it yielded. Yeah. Sort of, you gotta have to look at the whole global picture, yeah. not just that this and, led to this. And, and, and across the board with Mike Boyle, there was nothing that can be connected to him that would be considered something that was dehumanizing or wrong or hurt humanity or the civic good of the community, either in Chicago, even with shutting down the city, or Indianapolis. The impact Mike Boyle had was of significant good. Yeah. Significant good. You seem like a reader. Kind of. Kind of. I mean, you've read several books. Yeah, yeah. Have you ever read Deflection in a dictionary? (laughs) What? I'll change my way for you. I found a woman, she took my love. But God sent that a woman from heaven above. She's young and tender, I'm wild as a lark. That's about as much difference as daylight and dark. But I said I'll change my ways for you Well, I'll change my ways for you Yes, I'll change my ways for you I wonder this heart proves untrue Long yelled and waited for something new Said I'll change my ways for you I may be stubborn My temper is hot I may try to live Like something I'm not One thing's for sure 
you're around I'll take those weights and lay them down Well, I said I'll change my ways for you Well, I'll change my ways for you Yes, I'll change my ways for you Oh, and if this heart proves I'm true Lordy, I'll admit something new Said I'll change my ways for you Whatever you say, that's what I'll do I'll be your slave, I'll be your crew And when this heart gets out of line I'll trade it in for a brand new kind Well, I said I'll change my ways for you I'll change.